0: Hello everyone and welcome to Cody's Car Conundrum. I'm your host Cody Wagner. Here we'll discuss everything related to the wide world of automobiles, including culture, news, games, interviews, and events. Without further ado, let's get on with the show. Hey, hey everyone, welcome to the show. Today for the Sunday special podcast we're going to be diving into an article from Road & Track, written by Mike Prison about cheating in motorsports history. This article seems to be a little bit long, and hopefully it'll be quite intriguing, so let's get into it. Racing sponsors might like the bright, easily identifiable colors that help sell their products. Drivers surely go for the black and white of the checkered flag, and fans prefer green flags to other color options. But to crew chiefs and technical directors, there is no more beautiful color than gray. That's because gray is somewhere between the light and the dark, between the legal and the outlawed. The gray area between the lines of a rulebook is where teams find an advantage over their less clever adversaries. Innovation is neither inherently moral nor immoral. It simply is. Cheating is immoral, of course, but even when someone is clearly breaking the rules, there are still shades of gray. Was the cheat so ingenious, like the Toyota example below, that even those tasked with policing such things couldn't help but acknowledge its brilliance? This story might be the six cleverest cheats in motorsport, but that's not exactly true. The cleverest ones are those that provided an advantage and went undiscovered. The ones that only a few people know about because they are the ones who who thought it up. Here are great ones that we know about. Restrictor Plate Gate, World Rally Championship 1995. For three consecutive years, 1992 to 1994, the World Rally Championship, WRC, title went to the Toyota Celica Turbo Drivers Carlos Sainz and Johan Kanukian. I got that horribly wrong, I'm sure, I'm sorry. And Didier Auro. I got that wrong, too. The streak ended with a resounding thud in 1995, a year in which the WRC mandated restrictor plates to limit air intake and slow the cars in the name of safety. Toyota Team Europe engineers thought they found a way around the restrictor plate regulation by finding a way around the restrictor plate. It was a cheat so subtle, so ingenious that it wasn't identified until the penultimate race of the 1995 season. That's when a tech inspector discovered a hairline fracture in the Celica's restrictor plate. While the plate itself was legal, inspectors discovered that it was installed and tightened into place using a set of hidden springs, Bellevue washers, that would push the, the restrictor plate 5 millimeters farther from the turbo than the rules mandated and allowed some air to enter the turbo without passing through the plate. It was good for an additional 50 Horsepower. But the real genius of the contraption was that if inspectors tried to have a peek inside, the mere act of loosening the hood clamps that held it together would release the tension on the springs and return the restrictor plate to a legal position. FIA President Mac Mosley called the cheat the most sophisticated I've ever seen in 30 years of motorsports. Still, the Toyota team was banned from the WRC for one year. That's insane! We're talking about 1995. That, the level of electronics needed to notice the hood clamps being loosened to then put the restrictor plate back where it was to its legal position, that's, that's kind of surprisingly advanced for 1995. And I know that we had rudimentary active aero because of the Mitsubishi 3000 GT, but still, that is, that is legitimately impressive. That's, that's almost just being pedantic. That's James May levels of attention to detail. That's a, that is incredible. And the Smoky goes to... Smoky! NASCAR 1967 to 1968. If there were an Oscars for motorsports cheating, the statuette would be cast wearing a cut-down cowboy hat and a smoking pipe. The flat hat wearing, pipe-smoking, smoky eunuch, hopefully I got that right, is nothing shor- short of a folk hero to motorsports tinkerers and fans of general impishness. Stories of eunuch's rule-bending are legion, and some of them are even true. But even by his stratospheric standards, Unix, NASCAR, Chevrolet, Chevelles of the late 1960s were something special. So shrouded in folklore are these black and gold Chevys that people believed they were 7-8th seven, scale models. They weren't. Instead, they were full size vehicles with a multitude of subtle and clever modifications, some of which were not exactly by the book. The chassis used in 1967 had been custom-built by Chevrolet, which was then providing backdoor support to certain racers, including Unic. It had a reworked suspension and a roll cage that, tied to the stiff frame, made it effectively a tube frame racer. Chevy also undertook an exhaustive aerodynamic study of the Chevelle's body on behalf of Unix's car. It easily took pole position for the 1967 Daytona 500 against well-funded factory teams from Ford and Chrysler but engine problems cut its race short, and it was heavily damaged in a severe crash shortly thereafter. But in 1968, Smokey came back with another Chevelle much like the 67 car, although he had built this one himself. The chassis was similar to the early ca- earlier car, with the body set back a couple of inches on the frame for better weight distribution. Not only that, but the aero trickery was quite impressive too. The chrome front bumper was deepened to act as an air dam. Rain gutters and glass trim were made flush with the body. The roof's trailing edge was upswept like a spoiler. The underbody was smoother than stock, with a modified floor plan for clean airflow. This time, NASCAR called foul and banned the Chevelle from the 68 Daytona 500 unless Unix changed nine offending aspects of the car. The story goes that NASCAR officials even removed the fuel tank for inspection, inspection, only to see Unix start the car sands gas tank and drive it to the pits, saying, Better make it ten. Eunuch noticed that the rulebook specified a maximum volume for the fuel tank, but it didn't say anything at all about fuel lines. So, depending on which retelling you believe, even Smokey had multiple versions, he replaced the normal fuel line with 11-foot-long, 1- or 2-inch-wide fuel lines that added either 2 or 5 gallons to the car's total fuel capacity. It's such a great story, it barely matters which version is true. As Eunuch wrote in his autobiography, Was this car a cheater-smokey? You're gosh darn right it was. Winging it, Formula 1, 2011-2014. Red Bull Racing's four consecutive F1 championships from 2010-2013 to were as much a product of innovation, technology, and living in the gray area of the rulebook as they were the driving skill of four-time F1 champion Sebastian Vettel. In 2011, Vettel drove Red Bull's RB7 to his second consecutive championship with 11 wins and 15 poles in 19 races. The RB7 featured a flexible, and and in the eyes of many of its rivals, illegal front wing. The wing allowed the car to pass tech inspection at a legal ride height while standing still. However, not unlike Brabham's BT49C from 1981. 1981. Man, Brabham was ahead of the curve. The car was a different beast at speed as the wing was designed to deflect down as the car reached race speed. movable aerodynamics were outlawed in Formula 1 in 1969. Lowering the gap between wing and track for an aerodynamic advantage over the competition, the wing was designed by careful layering of carbon composite materials, allowing it to flex outward and down when subjected to the loads created by a car at speed. The wing passed inspection all seasons and into 2012 or er, passed inspection all season and into 2012. But by 2013, the FIA had incorporated stricter testing and was able to crack down on Red Bull's flexible bodywork. End of story, right? Wrong! At the final race of the 2014 season, Red Bull was penalized still for flexible front wings in qualifying and forced to start the race from the back. That it takes dedication to be like. Oh, stricter rules? Nah, we'll just be even sneakier about it. <laughs> Lowrider Formula One 1981. While there is a fine line between cheating and innovating, Formula One racing engineer and car designer Gordon Murray knew he was pulling a fast one in 1981 when he unleashed a Brabham BT49C. Oh, hey, the aforementioned car on the field. The car used a hydro suspension system that allowed it to run lower to the track than the rule than the rules allowed thereby improving its aerodynamic performance. At a standstill, the car had the requisite 6 centimeters of ground clearance because its pneumatic suspension cylinders were full, half with air and half with uh, hydraulic fluid. But once the car was up to speed, the aerodynamic downforce provided provided by the front and rear wings would push push down on the body, expelling just enough of the cylinder's contents to a central reservoir, thereby lowering the ride height. The car would remain in its lowered state until the end of the race, when a slow cool-down lap would relieve the pressure and return the car to a legal ride height. Well, reasoned Murray, it was legal when official measurement measurements were taken at a standstill. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> that, that's just a little bit of whinging there, but that, that's quite funny. The car must therefore be legal. To divert attention from his trick suspension, Murray mounted a useless aluminum box with some wire wires sticking out of it. The system was discovered, and its legality debated by rivals following Nelson Piquet's win with the Brabham in Argentina in the third race of the 81 season. By the next race, the controversy subsided as similar systems were being used by many competitors. Whatever advantage Piquet gained early in the season was just enough, however, as he won the 1981 F1 title by a single point. Breakdancing! Formula 1, 1997-1998 the McLaren F1 team lived in the rulebook gray area during the second half of the 1997 season and into the 1998 season. Thanks to a second brake pedal that allowed drivers David Coulthard and Mika Hakkinen to activate just one of the rear brakes when desired, the brainchild of American engineer Steve Nicholas, the system helped reduce understeer by pivoting the McLaren MP4-12 into corners. It took the eye of an F1 photographer to capture a glowing rear brake while the car was racing out of a turn, which caught the attention of the competition. McLaren engineers later claimed that the innovation, which was put into play for the second half of the '97 season, was worth as much as half a second per lap. Did it work? In 1997, Coulthard won two races and finished third in the championship, while Hakkinen won his first career race and finished sixth. Rival Ferrari led the protest, claiming that McLaren was doing something that fit the description of illegal four-wheel steering. The FIA agreed and banned McLaren's brake steer early in the 1998 season. That would be the same 1998 season, by the way, in which Hakkinen won 8 of 16 races and the F1 championship. Air Supply, World Rally Championship 2003. Air plus fuel equals power. This is why sanctioning bodies from all forms of motorsports... Look to limit power by restricting the amount of air allowed into an engine. We've already seen how Toyota got around air restrictors in '95. Ford had a different idea. In 2003, the Focus RS rally car used recycled air to boost performance. Ford engineers built an air tank and hid it under the rear bumper cover. The tank, constructed of 2mm thick titanium, harvested and housed pressurized air from the turbocharger during off-throttle driving. On long straights, drivers could release the stored air, which was fed back to the engine's intake manifold through a titanium pipe. And, coming from the rear, the forbidden air bypassed the mandated restrictor plate. This little trick increased power by 5%. Ford's top driver in the WRC that year, Marco Martin, won two rallies and finished fifth in the championship. He was also disqualified once, as the cheat lasted three rallies before it was discovered and then subsequently banned that's kind of, that's kind of interesting. That's, that really is quite innovative. That's, that's like using air, that's like making air a mild hybrid system. Using the batteries, like how a lot of mild hybrids work today, you have the, you have the batteries, I think you have, either you have some electric motors, or it's in some way connected to the engine, but basically what the mild hybrid does is it boosts power low down. Well, I'm not sure if they used this whatever they call the system to boost power low down but it's more or less using air like a lot on the surface like how mild hybrid systems today boost engines because like i've said before the difference between a normal hybrid and a mild hybrid is that a normal hybrid can drive as an electric only car it has its own set of electric motors that can drive the vehicle as well but with a mild hybrid Oh yeah, with a mild hybrid, you don't have an electric-only mode. Instead, the batteries and electricity is simply used to boost the internal combustion engine. And so that's why this this is effectively turning air into a mild hybrid system. The air is not turning the wheels itself, but you're just recycling air coming out of the turbo and then forcing it back into the engine to boost the engine power. It's a mild hybrid system for air. That's crazy. That's just insane. That would be... I think my dad's point about why with electric cars no one thinks to use the outside air rushing over the car to either help the help the batteries or add power or whatever his point was a while ago there there would be a example of someone deciding to use the air at the very least coming from the engine and then putting it back into the engine but yeah and with the mild hybrids regenerative regenerative braking comes into that as well but then going back up a little bit to the brake dancing where you can break each individual wheel that sounds like a god awful idea. Where you're, I mean, the the pitching the car into the corners sounds fantastic, but only breaking one tire sounds that that is just one of many examples why Formula One drivers are not a different breed, but are up there with rally drivers as far as being gods among men. Being able a being able to choose which tire you want to, or yeah, which tire you want to break, and then being able to confidently break that one wheel to pitch the car in, and not spin it, and not just spin out, that is very, very impressive. I think my favorite, though, I think my favorite has to go to the first one that we watched, with the Toyota, because that's, it's such a minimal change. It's such a minimal, yet ingenious change, but it made such a big difference. I mean, 50 horsepower! That's not insignificant. That is insane. Which story was your favorite, though? Let me know in the comments below. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, then please like, comment, share, and follow... Well, like the episode, share the episode, and follow the podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Hit the little notification bell, then all notifications. That way, you'll be notified every time I upload. If you want to listen to this podcast on the road, but don't have or want the Pod B mobile app, well, then just boot up wherever you get your podcast, Type in Chris Car Conundrum, and then choose the episode you want to listen to. I'll see you all next time. You've just listened to me probably ramble about some cars, if I'm being honest. If you've enjoyed me passionately talking about lumps of metal on wheels, then why don't you follow me on Twitter at C O N U N D R M or check out my website, www.Cody'sCarConundrum.com, for articles and other car-related content.